Praise the Lord. Uh, Before we go on, let's pray. Father, I thank you that each of us is able to be here today. I thank you, Lord, for the ears that are here, that we may attend to your word. We trust, Lord God, that you will open our ears to hear, that you will open our eyes to see those images that you bring to our mind as we hear from your word today, Lord. We ask that you would guide us, and we trust that you will. We know that you will take your word and seat it in our hearts where it will do the most good. And we pray, Father, for each one present and those who will join us later in Christ's name and all of God's people said, Amen. We're going to continue our spiritual battle training today by looking at what's called our Lord's triumphal entry. Christ is our King, and as the King, He is our armor. And today we recall that big day when everybody paved the way for him to come into Jerusalem. They paved the way. And we celebrate to prepare ourselves to receive our king. He promised to come, and by faith, we know that he is coming. Today is what most Christians call Palm Sunday. Many will receive palm leaves and revere them as sacred objects until next year at this time. Some will burn them and make ashes of them and put them on other people's foreheads, and others will just hold on to them until next year when they get some fresh ones. But on that day, and this is why it was significant for the children to come in and throw the palms on the floor, on that day, those palm leaves were simply like shop towels, grease absorbers, or kitty litter because it was just to pave the way of the king and cover the animal waste that was on the roads. They want the king to walk over that waste. It was unclean. And so when they threw those palm leaves, it was to cover that unclean path and pave the way of the king as he rode triumphantly into town. And we're going to look at several things in this message today. First is Passover. We're going to briefly look at that. And, and it's also the Feast of Unleavened Breads, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread. They can use those terms interchangeably. The humility of our Lord showed as He revealed His eternal kingship. He was humble, riding on a donkey. And the third thing we're going to look at is the way things looked versus the way the things were at that time. And fourth is Christ's everlasting victory over evil. And with that, I want you to open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 21. And if you're looking in these uh, Bibles that we have in the seats there, you'll find that on page 1525, Matthew chapter 21. And I'm going to read just the first 11 verses, because that gives us a, a clear indication of what was going on at that time. Matthew chapter 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. 
And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Yahashua the prophet from the Nazareth of Galilee. Yahashua being his Hebrew name, that's the name they would have used. They wouldn't have called him Jesus. We call him Jesus. But let us pray. Father, we ask that you would open your word in our hearts, that we would recognize the truth of it, Lord, no matter what we've been taught before this moment in time. And we pray this all in Christ's name and all of God's people said, Amen. <clears throat> Passover marks God's delivering his people from slavery. In fact, and we look in the 12th chapter of Exodus, and I thought to read the first 14 verses, but that's a very long passage, and it would take a long time. So I thought I'd just kind of bring out the highlights of it. And this is where we can read the account of how the Lord spoke to Aaron and Moses, and He gave them specific instructions to establish the Passover. Every man was to slaughter a lamb and take some of that blood from the lamb and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they ate that lamb. This was the Lord's Passover. He promised to pass through the land of Egypt on that particular night and strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, man and beast. And he was going against all the gods of Egypt, and he would execute judgment. This is what he said to Moses and Aaron. And the blood would be a sign for them on their houses. This was a sign. When God saw that blood, He would pass over them. Hence the name Passover. Passover. And the plague would not destroy them when He struck the land of Egypt. It was God Himself who promised to destroy the firstborn of every household. The firstborn of even the animals. Imagine that. The destruction that God brought at that time because of the sin of the people. And when God saw that blood, He'd pass over those who had the blood on the doorposts and the lentils. And very often when we anoint things, we anoint the sides and the top. When the Lord told them this is be the day, He said, this shall be to you a memorial. This is Exodus chapter 12, and I believe verse 14. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. And God never lifted that ordinance. The Passover celebrated to this day. And then in verse 21 of Exodus 12, we read that Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. So we see the memorials called Passover, and so is the lamb. And this is why we hear of Christ being our Passover. He's our Passover. In Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 5, it's written, on the 14th day of the month, the first month, at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And this is where we get the idea that this is the beginning of the Christian year, for some, not for all. 
Now, Passover was known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as I said before. In fact, it's written in Mark chapter 14. There's two passages, which is the testimony of two witnesses, that tells us two days, after two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. The chief priests, these were the most religious people at that time who knew God's Word that existed up until that time, and here they were, the Messiah had come, and they missed Him. They didn't get it. They didn't recognize Him. All that they had in their heart was to destroy Him. And we're going to look at a number of scriptures that talk about that. And in uh, verse 12 of Mark chapter 14, it's written, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, notice the lamb is called Passover, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? He doesn't eat a celebration. He doesn't eat a festival. He eats the animal. Now, one we call Jesus was both the king and the sacrificial lamb. And this time is when we look at that. And it's important that we know, not only was he the king, he was the, the lamb that was going to be slain. As king, he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem to keep Passover. And the people believed he was leading them to earthly victory. But as the sacrificial lamb of God, he was preparing to be slaughtered. And why? To take away the sins of the world and lead us to eternal victory. In Isaiah 53, 5, it's written, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. As king, His entrance signified His announcement that He ruled. He was announcing His kingship. This was his grand entrance into Jerusalem. Millions of people had descended upon Jerusalem at that time of the year to celebrate Passover, to remember how God had passed over his people who had obeyed him. This was his grand entrance. And those people were there for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But as the sacrificial lamb of God, he modeled the way of kingdom, life, and power. And how? This was the start of him picking up that physical cross. He knew he was going to the cross. In Luke chapter 9, it's written, Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, he had taken up the cross from the start. He left glory to come into this world as that sacrifice. And yet here he was, revealing his submission to the physical cross during Passover. He willingly became the Passover lamb to deliver us from evil. Unlike any earthly king, he did not choose the best horse to ride. The kings would ride into town when they were victoriously proclaiming themselves as the king. They would ride into town on the majestic steed of some sort. But instead, he chose to ride a donkey. He humbled himself. And that was the fulfillment of prophecy. 
In Zechariah 9, 9, it's written, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of salvation, excuse me, Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, it was written and fulfilled in that action that we look at on this day that we call Palm Sunday. He rode in on a donkey. You ever smell a donkey? We thought about maybe bringing one in sometime so the children could see and get all the fullness of that experience. <clears throat> but we didn't. In Isaiah 62.11, it's written, Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world, Say to the daughter of Zion, Surely your salvation is coming. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His work before Him. His work before Him. Most certainly, the work that He was to do was, in fact, before Him. He was going to the cross. That was the work. And it was before Him at that point in time. <clears throat> As king... He was cheered on by the crowds of people who covered the roads with their clothing. Now, I don't know about you folks. I'm not going to take my jacket off. I've done it before, but I'd throw my jacket out and say, now step on it. Because that's what the people were doing. They were casting their clothes down. They were casting the palm branches down. And somehow the church has translated that into something that we should uh, almost idolize. I remember one time when I had uh, palm leaves and I threw them on the floor and some woman gasped in the service. I mean, literally, like loud enough for everybody to hear her and turn around, like, is something wrong with her? Yeah. It was like that. Because we threw them on the floor, she had that idol in her heart that that was something that you didn't do that to. And exactly that's what happened on that first, what we call Palm Sunday. The first, when he rode into town, they were throwing the leaves down, and it was to cover up the mess that was on the road. We have to be careful not to get caught up in those traditions to the point where we're idolizing something that is not Christ Himself. We're not going to worship something that isn't our Lord. As king, as I said, he was cheered on by the crowds who covered the road with their clothing and palm leaves, and this was an ancient custom. Because they didn't have automobiles, they didn't have asphalt, they didn't have concrete roads. And their modes of transportation were camels and other beasts of burden. And, you know, they don't hold it when they're going down the road. They're going to be a mess. And people just stepped on that. And this is why Jesus brought out the idea of washing feet, because their feet were dirty. People were walking either barefoot or they walking with open-toed, uh, what do you call it, foot coverings. In Isaiah 53, in verse 4, it's written, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And there's a, a song that we sing at this time of the year, although Chris and I haven't practiced it. We, we've done it in the past. And I'll just do a line of it if I can remember. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. This is Christ by man rejected. Hear my soul, your Savior, see. And it goes on to speak about how he died that death. As the Lamb of God, He was leading Himself to the slaughter. But as the King, we see His subjects receiving Him into their midst, believing He was going to deliver them from the Roman occupation. But 
as the Lamb of God, we see Almighty God receiving Him as the perfect, spotless sacrifice to deliver mankind from sin. Now, those religious and civil authorities were plotting to kill Him, and He knew this was their plan. What they meant for evil, though, God meant for... What did He mean it for? Good! God meant it for good! They meant it for evil! They were going to take this prophet out! They were going to take this man of God out! They were going to kill him and make him stop! They thought they did. But we know better. And we celebrate that in the form of Resurrection Day. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 is written, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. All things. All things. Now, His disciples, as they watched Him go on that cross, they thought, this is it. What did we do? We followed the wrong guy. Something's wrong here. This isn't the way it was supposed to end. It's not the way it's written. It's not the way we understand what is written. But he knew they were plotting to kill him. In Luke chapter 19, it's written, he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, these were the religious leaders at that time, they should have known better. They should have known. They should have recognized him. And the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. See, they didn't want to take him out in front of us, these crowds of people who were listening to him. They were attending to his words. And in Matthew chapter 21, it's written, Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them, and he was. But when they sought to lay hands on him, he, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. They couldn't take him. The chief priests and the Pharisees wanted to take him out, but they couldn't. And in Luke chapter 20, it's written, the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. There were snitches. They were religious snitches, and they were trying to catch him on any, in anything that they possibly could. They didn't care what it was. They just wanted to be able to bring him to the governor so the governor could condemn him. In verse 2 of, verse, uh, of Luke 22, <clears throat> it's written, The chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. And that, that word sought there means plotted or, or deliberated. Try to figure it out. How can we get this guy? How can we get him? We got to get him. We have to get him. They weren't kind about it. It's written in Matthew chapter 26, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar amongst the people. And later in chapter, in Acts, I don't remember what the chapter is, excuse me. We hear where uh, they were holding off because of Easter. The King James Version uh, translates the word Passover to Easter because that's what Herod was celebrating. 
In John chapter 5, it's written, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill Him, because He had done these things on the Sabbath. And this was an ongoing thing. They wanted Him dead. They wanted Him dead. They wanted Him dead. This wasn't like a sudden thing where they arrested Him and said, Okay, yeah, crucify Him. No, they were plotting it. They were planning it. It was an ongoing thing. We don't know how long, but we see throughout the gospel records that they are plotting to kill Him. Did He run from it? He did hide for a moment. And we'll read about that. In John 5 and verse 18, it's written, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath by healing somebody, but also said that God was his Father, making him equal with God. How dare he, right? These religious people had a system. It was set up, and they were reaping the benefits. They were making big bucks. This was their business. It wasn't about worshiping God. It was about making it a business. We've got a profit on this. And he's messing with our money. That's the bottom line. Matthew 26, excuse me, we read that. John chapter 7 is where it's written, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. It wasn't his time. So he did avoid them for a time. But he didn't run off. He didn't run off into hiding somewhere. Staying in Galilee was just to keep those Jews in Judea from killing him at that time. In Luke chapter 13 and verse 31, it's written, On that very day some Pharisees came saying to him, and there were Pharisees who were following him. There were Pharisees that believed, in fact, he was the man of God. They understood that he was the one. And they came and warned him, Get out! Depart from here! Herod wants to kill you. In the 11th chapter of John, we read about our Lord raising Lazarus from the dead. It's a great account, and it's sometimes the text that we use this time of the year. Let's talk about the resurrection. We may look at that next week. I'm not sure. In John chapter 11, verses 45 and 46, we learn that many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus did believed in Him. They believed in Him. They came to help Mary as she grieved the loss of her brother, Mary and Martha. The text only tells us Mary. But then some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. The snitches. The agents. They went to that religious authorities and they said, this guy just raised somebody from the dead. You got a problem. These people, they're not going to, oh, you are in trouble now. There's no way you can take him out because he just raised this guy Lazarus from the dead. And he would, not only did he raise him from the dead, it was four days after he died. Now they knew up to three days the soul could return to the body. They knew at that time, and I've researched this very extensively, not for this message, but previously. They knew up to three days the soul could return. So if somebody raised somebody from the dead within three days, they just said, ah, that's no big deal, the soul can come back. But on the fourth day? Uh-uh. So that's why he waited. That's why he waited. That's why he waited. They plotted. In John chapter 11 and verse 53, it's written, then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. After he raised Lazarus from the dead, this just incensed them. Who is this guy? Come on, we got to take him out. He's messing with our stuff here. 
At his trial, the Jews told Pilate, we have a law. And according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. When he sat to eat the Passover, he told his disciples, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He knew right then. They're sitting down to the Passover, and he knew, and he's telling his disciples, and they're looking like, what? What's he talking about? He's the king. He's not going to die. What's he talking about? They didn't have a clue. He didn't have a clue. He foretold his death many times, even in parables. And we'll look at one of those, just one. There are several. But uh, we see in Mark chapter 9 and verse 31, he taught his disciples and said to them, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. Is there anything that isn't clear about that? He said they will kill him. He calls himself the Son of Man, and he says he's going to die. He's going to be killed. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. He predicted foretold, prophesied of his resurrection. In Mark chapter 10, it's written, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Again, he predicted his death. He predicted all of the things that we look at on Good Friday. This is going to happen, he said, and his disciples were still clueless. Somehow it didn't get in. And the parable that I'll reference is in Mark chapter 12. He says, those vine dressers said to themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. The vine dressers are representative of the uh, religious leaders at that time. And he's the heir. They thought they'd just knock him out of the way and that everything would go just as it always had. And the humility that our Lord showed as he revealed his eternal kingship is unmatched by any earthly ruler, king, president, congresspeople, whomever. It's unmatched. There are none who would be so humble. No public servants anywhere in the world would do such a thing. It's written in Titus chapter 2. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. The way things looked versus the way that they were is clear now, but not then. A week before his brutal death, the people were cheering him on. Cheering him on. The multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. As we go into Mark's gospel record, it, it tells us that blessed is the king of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And John's gospel record tells us the next day a great multitude had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took branches of palm trees, went out to meet him, and cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. They thought they were installing him as the physical earthly king. Boy, did they have it wrong. I pray that none of us have it wrong when he comes back. 
They were taught wrong. They didn't receive the truth. Those religious leaders at that time, they did it their way. They shared their way. They taught their way. They twisted the Scriptures ever so slightly, very subtly. This is what's happened since the time of His resurrection. The Scriptures have been twisted and and turned, and the meaning of things have been changed. And we have many people who don't realize where we are in time right now. He revealed His eternal kingship, and He did so humbly. But He's not coming back that way. He's coming back as a mighty lion, the king, triumphant. In Matthew chapter 21, it's written, when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that He did, and the children crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And just a few days later, the mobs of people were shouting for Him to be crucified. And that's written throughout the gospel records. We're going to read a few of those accounts. Matt, or excuse me, Mark chapter 15 is where it's written that the chief priests stirred up the crowd. The chief priests, the religious The most religious, the highest in the religious realm. They were stirring up the crowds, rousing this response. They wanted Pilate to release Barabbas to them. And Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him who you call the king of the Jews? And they cried again, Crucify him! Pilate said, Why? What, What evil has he done? And they cried out all the more, Crucify him! In John chapter 19, it's written, Therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Everybody, crucify him! Crucify him! These were the people that had followed him into town. Some of them, at least. These were the ones that were yelling, Hosanna to the Son of David. They turned on him. Pilate said, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. And as we know, he washed his hands of that matter. He didn't want his blood on his hands. John chapter 19 is written, but they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Some things haven't changed. There are many within religion today that have no king but Caesar. And the last couple of years has shown that to me. There are many who have no king but Caesar. God have mercy on their souls. God's everlasting victory over evil, it's obvious to us now, but it wasn't obvious then. Faith is the victory. At least that's what the Scripture tells us. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Faith is the victory, faith is the victory, oh, glorious victory that overcomes the world. As I wrap this up, folks, I want you to remember the fact that things are not as they seem now. Our king is on the eternal throne, even as humans are plotting and scheming to rule the world, 
Our king is on the everlasting throne. And it doesn't matter what they do. It's all playing out as it is written. We need to hold on to our faith, the faith that's our shield. We need to remain in Christ, Christ who's our armor. Their plans, while they will be effective in the short term, will have no lasting significance because our king and his kingdom are eternal. And I know that's not easy for us to to hold on to sometimes, especially when things are looking bad for us in the world. Our king's the everlasting king of kings, and yet he humbled himself by riding a donkey as he entered Jerusalem. He humbled himself by becoming the sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. But he's going to return to earth with glory and power and majesty. He's coming as the king eternal, overruling all others. Our everlasting king of kings, the king of all kingdoms, he's going to be cheered by millions who will receive him as their sovereign ruler forevermore. The Scripture tells us that the whole earth is going to see him when he comes. It's not a secret. There are some who say that it is, that he's going to come secretly and then he's going to come back again. But that's not what he says. My brothers and sisters and neighbors and friends, that's why we remember his triumphal entry. Before he laid down his earthly life and picked up that physical cross, we see the comparison and the contrast between the world and the body. The body of believers welcoming him. In the world saying, crucify him. In Christ as our armor, we are shielded by the blood which he shed, just as those in Egypt were shielded by the blood that they put on the doorposts and the lintels. Because he's our Passover, and he averts the curse of eternal dying. He brought everlasting victory. Everlasting victory. It's not temporal victory. It is forever. Forever. And this is the triumph over enemies. And all of us can sing that hymn that we know so well, Victory in Jesus. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him, and all my love is due Him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, that... We thank You. We thank You for the Savior that You sent to be the Passover. We thank You, Lord, for His sacrifice. We thank You for the blood that was shed that ours wouldn't need to be. And that ours can't atone for sin, Lord, is obvious by Your Word. So we thank You that You made the atonement clear, that You cut the covenant with mankind through the blood of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, as we go forward 
as we look back and at the same time move forward in our lives as so many things are turbulent in this world, Father, we ask that you would bring peace to our hearts knowing that your word is true and that it is being fulfilled as it is written. Help each of us, Lord. Everybody who's within the sound of my voice, I pray, Father, that none would bow down before Caesar, that we would stand in the triumph of Christ, victorious, knowing that these earthly lives are temporal, but our everlasting life comes in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.